I am so happy to be with y'all this morning. Thomas already told you a lot about me, but I recognize that a number of us don't know each other. So if I could just tell you maybe three more things that I think if you know these things, you know everything you need to know to know about me and all that is to come. I love Jesus. I love professional wrestling. And I love boy bands. Especially New Kids on the Block. Now with those three things, I think we're gonna, you're going to find that, that we're on the same page for the rest of this time. Let me start not by talking about me, but by talking about a friend of mine in New York City. He's a pastor now, but long before he was a pastor, he was a teenager, right? And as a teenager, much like myself, he became enamored with a certain rapper named Nas for his poetic stylings and his unique perspective on the world. And my friend, like me, listened to his every verse over and over and over again. He memorized every line, and his worldview was shaped by hip-hop and by this particular rapper named Nas. Well, a few years into this, uh, this admiration was overcome by a greater admiration. This worldview was torn down and replaced with a true and wise and biblical one as Jesus uh, revealed himself to my friend, and my friend became not a follower of Nas, but a follower of Christ. But as the years went on, even with his newfound faith and perspective on the world, he never stopped thinking about this guy that he admired throughout all of his teenage years. He would pray for him semi-regularly. In fact, he would specifically pray that God would give to him, a fellow New Yorker, the opportunity to run into Nas and get to share with him both how much Nas had influenced him and, more importantly, how he had found a far greater influence in Christ Jesus. Well, a few years later, my friend decides uh, to plant a church there in New York. And like any church planner, and especially in New York, he needed to get another job. So he started working at a hotel. And in this hotel, who would check in one night but none other than his favorite rapper, Nas? And my friend knew that as an employee of this hotel, there were a few things you were not supposed to do when celebrities checked in. You were not supposed to ask them for autographs. You were not supposed to ask them for pictures. You were not uh, supposed to hand them your demo tape. And you most certainly were not supposed to challenge their religious convictions by telling them that you had the truth and they did not. But my friend knew that this would be his only chance to speak to this man. He knew that this one who had, whom he had admired, this one for whom he had prayed for for years, was going to be standing in front of his face and he would never again have the opportunity to say anything to this one. And as he knew and as we know, the less time you have with the person... The more carefully you choose the words that you're going to say, right? The less time that you have with the person, the more essential it is that you say what most needs to be said. And so in spite of the expectations of his job, on the last night of Nas's stay in his hotel, he stands out of Nas's locked hotel room, pulls out his phone, sends a text message to two friends and says... I'm about to knock on Nas's door and try to share Jesus with him. Pray for me. He knocks on the door. He starts, is there anything I can get for you? Do you need anything? How's your stay been? And then he goes to telling him how impactful his music has been on him, even quoting his lyrics. And then he says, but you know, as much as you shaped my, world, my view of the world, I've come to see that, that there's a massive piece of wisdom that's missing from your music. Would it be all right with you if I shared with you what I think has been missing from your music? And very intrigued, Nas says, sure. And then my friend begins to share the gospel with this man who he had prayed for for many years, the man he had admired since middle school. 
Well, today, this morning, you guys are my Nas. I don't mean that you're good rappers, you are, but the rest of you, probably not. Uh, and even if you were, you probably wouldn't rap about the copious amount of weed you smoked on your way to church this morning as Nas would. But what I mean by that is that I have prayed for you for a number of years. Uh, since day one of this church's existence, me, my church, my family have prayed for you. And over the past six, seven weeks, obviously we have prayed for you with much greater fervency and much more frequently. And as I prepared to come here this morning, I thought about all those prayers that I prayed, and I thought about the fact that the last time I stood before what, what is called Trinity Church was eight years ago, right? Very few of you were probably personally a part of the community at that point. And I don't know if I'll get to speak to you again another eight years or, or never again. And so I find myself in the same situation as my friend. I don't know if I'll ever get to speak to these people again whom I have been praying for regularly for years and especially over the past few weeks. And so I prayed countless prayers, and I thought probably way too hard and way too much. Um, if I only have one shot to talk to these people that I care about, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the church uh, that gathers here every Sunday, what do I want to say to them? What is the most essential thing that I could say to these people if I know that I won't be back anytime soon to get to speak to them again? And the preacher in me, actually it's probably more fair to say, the sinner in me wanted to answer that question in this way, with something creative, something impressive, something that would blow your minds. You'd be like, have him back next week, right? That's not going to happen. Um, what, I, what I decided instead through prayer and wrestling was that what I most needed to say was something so incredibly simple so incredibly basic. Every one of you knows it, and yet I believe that the best thing I could do today is use the little time I have to remind you of it. And so I'm just going to reinforce two basic points over and over again throughout our time together this morning. Number one, hold fast to the faith you profess. And number two, draw near to the throne of grace with absolute confidence. If you can remember to do these two very basic things, hold fast to the faith you profess and continually draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, you can endure any and every situation that life has thrown, is throwing, or one day will throw. You can find everything that you need to, to endure your suffering, everything you need to deal with your anger, to endure your doubts and to endure uh, and to deal with your questions to endure your disappointment, to deal with your regret, whatever it is that happens or will happen in your personal life, whatever it is that happens or will happen in your church life, if you remember to do simply these two things over and over and over and over again, you will have all of the resources you need not only to survive dark moments and difficult moments, but to thrive even in the midst of them. Now, of course, I don't say that for my own authority, though my own experience testifies to its truth. I say that based on the authority of the scriptures, specifically the book of Hebrews chapter four. So we're just gonna look at three verses this morning and then talk about them. Hebrews chapter four. In verse 14 of Hebrews chapter four, 
the author of the letter writes the following. 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's the passage we're going to look at today. You can keep it open if you want as we will return to reread certain sections of it throughout our time this morning. But the first thing that we will focus on is this very simple point. Brothers and sisters, hold fast. <laughs> Let me try that again. Hold fast to the faith you confess because Jesus Christ is your high priest. Hold fast to the faith you confess because you have Christ Jesus as your high priest. We don't know who wrote this letter to the Hebrews, but we absolutely know why, thanks to the context of the letter. The Christians that made up the original audience of this letter were suffering a lot. And partially because, if not largely because or entirely because of this suffering, they were facing the temptation to either abandon their faith or redefine their faith or Maybe stop publicly proclaiming or demonstrating their faith so much. Why? Because they thought that might be one means of minimizing the suffering they were experiencing. We also know that they were tempted to stop gathering with God's people. To stop gathering regularly with the church for many of the same reasons. And the purpose of this letter and the verses that we just read was to convince those ancient Christians who battled all sorts of suffering just as you do who wrestled with their own doubts and questions just as you do, that instead of drawing away from Jesus Christ due to their circumstances, that the real answer, the real help, was found in drawing nearer and nearer and ever nearer to Jesus Christ because of their circumstances. And even 2,000 years later, you and I with different circumstances, you and I with our own unique temptations, right, the letter encourages us in exactly the same way. Now I'm going to speak just for myself as I talk about some of our human tendencies, they may apply to some of you, or I may be very unique and they may not apply to any of you. But if you are suffering, I know this is true of me, sometimes in the midst of suffering, it is normal to either think or, or at least have something hidden in the very back of your mind that perhaps abandoning your faith or, or redefining your faith, or de-emphasizing your faith might be one of the keys to help you feel better. After all, God seems to be at least somewhat involved in your suffering. But we know, of course, that that's not the case. If you're doubting or questioning, it's, it's perfectly normal to think that redefining your faith, adapting your convictions to match your doubts will make you feel better. But that's also, of course, 
not at all true. Well, you suffer, well, you doubt, well, you experience disappointment, well, you experience anger, well, you come face to face with the challenges and the distractions of life. The only response that will actually serve you, the only response that will actually serve me is to hold fast to the faith that we profess. In fact, one of the things that's most stunning to me is that it is suffering itself. It is doubt itself. It is disappointment itself. It is all of these things that transform your faith from something you profess to something you possess, right? Before you suffer, your beliefs are are propositions that you can quote, that you can defend, but when you suffer, you are obligated to take those propositions that you can quote, defend, and define and actually put them into, the, into practice in the darkest, most difficult moments of your lives. Suffering, as unbearable as it is, either obligates you to wipe clean your, your whiteboard of propositions of faith or to hold faster to them than you have ever dared to hold to them in your entire life. Your doubts, your disappointments, your anger, all of these situations work in the same way, right? It's so easy to profess faith when you're not dealing with disappointments, with doubts, with questions. It's it's much more difficult to allow your faith to absorb and endure blow after blow after blow of the disappointment, of the doubting, of the questioning But when those blows start to fly, you really only have two options. You either hold even more fast to the faith you profess, or you transfer your faith from the promises of God to the confusion or the disagreements or the uncertainty of your heart. Either you will have faith in the promises of your trustworthy God, or you will have faith in the objections or confusion of your sinful heart. There's no middle ground. There's no faithlessness. It's either faith in his promises or faith in what our heart says to us. And from my personal experience as both a sufferer and as a skeptic, I will tell you the same thing that the author of Hebrews is saying to us. Hold fast to the faith you profess. Why? Not because that's the Christian thing to do. Not because I'm a pastor and it's my job to tell you to do that. Not not because it's bad to have doubts. Not because it's bad to be disappointed. Not because, well, your suffering isn't all that bad, right? Not because that true Christians don't fight uh, and fight and fight against all of these temptations in order to endure in the faith, no. Not for any of those reasons, but for this reason. Because you have Jesus as your high priest. That's what we read there right in that verse. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, the reason that you should hold fast to the faith you confess is that you have Jesus as your high priest. 
And what does it mean to have Jesus as your high priest? It means you have a leader to whom you can entrust everything. We know, of course, and in the history of the Old Testament, the high priest was the representative of God's people before God. The people of God could not draw near to God in the holiest place, in the holy of holies, where God dwelled, where God made himself known. They were too sinful. They were kept at a distance. But the, great, the high priest would, would enter into this unenterable place on behalf of God's people in order to make sacrifice for God's people so that they could relate to God as though they had not, as though they were not guilty of sin. As the author of Hebrews is going to explain in this whole letter, we don't need to, uh, to do it today, we can just summarize it. Jesus is the true and perfect high priest who fulfills that ancient role with absolute and eternal perfection. In contrast to the high priests of the Old Testament, Jesus not only represents us before God, which is glorious, but our high priest actually carries us with him into the very presence of this same God. As our high priest, our great high priest, he has torn the veil that separated us from the place where God dwells, the place where God makes himself known to his people. And he gifted us perpetual, uninhibited, uninterrupted access to the throne room of the God of the universe. Jesus obtained for us the unobtainable <laughs> because before God, Jesus lived a life of perfection, a life of stainless obedience, and he offered to that God the once and for all perfect stainless sacrifice of his own life. Well, other leaders ask us to offer ourselves on their behalf, our great high priest offered himself to God on our behalf. And he did this after living that life of obedience and trust and worship that was literally impeccable, literally in, without sin. And for this reason, Jesus became our eternal high priest whose priesthood will never end. He will always represent us before God in the bright moments and in the dark moments and everything in between. And he will always give us perpetual access to the same God in the bright moments, in the darkest of our dark moments, and everything in between. So when the author of Hebrews tells us, hold fast to the faith you confess, he is not telling you to hold fast to a collection of officially approved propositions. He is telling you to hold fast to a very specific person. Those propositions, as, you, as fast as you might hold to them, are not the thing you need to get through your moments of anger and disappointment and depression and darkness and confusion. What you need is a person in whom all of those propositions are fully and totally embodied. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hold fast to the faith by holding fast to this person, the great high priest who gives you perpetual access to the throne room of the God you most need. A person who is so committed to you that he sacrificed his own body, he sacrificed his own life, he sacrificed his own glory in order to destroy the barrier created by your sin and mine that stood between us and God. And as if that wasn't reason enough to hold fast 
to our faith by holding fast to this person. Look again at what it says in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. For me, the combination of verse 14 and verse 15 make this passage among the most meaningful and most powerful passages in all of human history, right? In verse 14, we see something shocking and comforting, right? In verse 14, we see that Jesus Christ, our high priest, is not like us. He is not like us because unlike us, he has never sinned. He is not like us because he has spent his every breath serving the God who you and I so frequently fail to serve. He is not like us because he was able to go before the presence of God by his own merit and therefore he was able to carry us with him by his merit. And this, my friends, is what we most need, right? We, we need someone who is not like us because only someone who is not like us can carry us into the presence of God, the presence which we could never access if we had to depend on ourselves or other human beings just like us. Jesus, our great high priest, is not like us, which is why he can take us to God's presence, but also The verse we just read, verse 15, says that in Jesus we have a great high priest who is just like us. He is not like us in his holiness, which is why he can take us into the presence of God, but he is like us in that it says here, he has been tempted in every respect, just as we are. The same Jesus who is not like us in our sins is exactly like us in our temptations. Therefore, he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Whatever your weakness may be, Jesus understands. You feel hopeless? Jesus understands. Are you angry? Jesus understands. Are you hurt? Are your desires left unfulfilled? Jesus understands. Have you experienced tremendous disappointment in your life? Jesus understands. Betrayal? Abandonment? Loneliness? Alienation? Jesus understands. Failed by someone who pledged their loyalty to you? Jesus understands. Do you feel tempted to give up? on others or give up on the faith, Jesus understands. Are you tempted to no longer fight, to no longer endure? Jesus understands. Are your body, your mind, your heart exhausted? Are you tempted to yield to temptation? Jesus understands. Jesus, the same High priest who carries you into the presence of God because of his uniqueness, because of his sinlessness, also sympathizes with you in your weakness, whether physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, because he has experienced the very same temptations. The great high priest who is not like you, just where you need him to not be like you, is just like you. In precisely the way that you need him to be like you. 
the only difference with respect to your weaknesses and your temptations is that Jesus did not yield to his temptations. The same verse tells us that he was without sin, which means that Jesus actually experienced your temptations immeasurably stronger than you ever will. Because you and I put an end to our temptation when? When we yield to sin. Once you yield to sin, you're not tempted anymore. It's done. But Jesus never yielded to sin. Which meant the temptation got stronger and stronger and kept calling and calling. Jesus then, for refusing to yield to temptation, knows the strength of temptation and of human weakness far greater than you and I ever will. How could we not? Hold fast to this high priest, one who is not like us in that he is utterly holy and one who is like us in that he gets our weakness and our temptation. One who understands our weaknesses but has also endured them and overcome them. One who is capable of carrying you into the very throne room of God because he has endured the temptation you cannot end the worst of all suffering so that you never will have to. When I say, hold fast to the faith you profess, I'm imploring you to hold fast to this Jesus, the one we're describing this morning. Not to a certain list of doctrines, not to a particular version of the Christian faith, but to Christ himself. And if you hold fast to him, you will never be ashamed. Because unlike anyone else in whom you could place your hope, he is able to carry you to God's presence in spite of the suffering and doubts and questions and disappointment that would prevent you from getting there. And once you get there, he's able to understand you in ways that no one else can. Hold fast to the faith you profess because in Christ Jesus you have a great high priest. Two simple points. The second point, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, because in Jesus Christ, you have a great high priest. This is what we read in verse 16. We'll look at it again quickly. Let us then, this is after describing everything we just summarized. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The first thing I want us to notice there is that word then, let us then. In other words, he's saying that, that the reason for which we can and should draw near to the throne of grace is that we have this great high priest who is not like us in all the ways he shouldn't be like us and who is like us in the way we most need him to be like us. Let us then, therefore, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. The fact that he is not like us means that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence knowing that we will not be rejected. He has achieved for us and won for us access to this throne by his uniqueness, his obedience in our place. The fact that he is exactly like us means we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because we know not only will he not reject us, he will sympathize with us. He will get it. He will understand the questions and the confusion and the darkness and the temptation and the weakness. 
Each time that I read this passage, I think about a certain period of my life in my 20s, several weeks ago, right? Uh. A little longer than that. Um, In my 20s, uh, I was... Gosh, I've already told you so much about me. I don't know if it's safe to say this as well. Uh, I was a male groupie. Um, What that means is that I admired musicians, singers, rappers, whatever, and I found a way every time they came to Portland to get to their hotel, to get to their backstage area, basically to get close to them. My purpose was to ask them for a job. That was it. But I found a way to get there to ask them for a job. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Cole Brown, that's me. Uh, is the male groupie of all male groupies. I was really good at it. But even as good as I was, and I was good, uh, there was always this point that I would arrive to in my sneaking around uh, where I would get to a point right before the Holy of Holies, right? Right before the most privileged place where a line would be drawn. And somebody holding something, looking really official, would be like, what's your name? And I would tell them my name. It was a different name back then. That's a different conversation for a different day. And they would look at the list, and they'd say, you can't go any further. You're not on the list. Sometimes they would say, how did you get even this far, right? (laughs) And then I would walk away dejected because I couldn't make it into the Holy of Holies. I didn't have the relationships with the right people to get me access to the most privileged places. Well, after a while of being the male groupie of all male groupies, I met a guy named Teddy Riley, who at the time was the most respected producer in his industry. And I began to work for him, and then everything changed. Because then, people were actually begging me to come confidently into their most holy places. Not because of my name, right? But because of his name. So when I would get to that last line, whether it be at a concert or a hotel or a recording studio or a record label, and they would ask me my name, I wouldn't even give my name. I'd say, I'm with Teddy. And they'd say, oh, come on in. My entire attitude of how I tried to approach those privileged places changed from one of great trepidation. Are they going to catch me? Are they going to let me in? Are they going to catch me? Are they going to let me in? To one of utter confidence where I was just like, I'm with Teddy and I belong here. And I would just go in. Well, you have that, you have something immeasurably and infinitely greater than that with Jesus, where you get to walk into the most inaccessible place, the throne room of God, and approach the most inaccessible person, the God of all glory, because you get to name the name of your great high priest. You don't have to pay to enter. Jesus paid for you to enter. You don't have to wait outside until he's ready to hear you. He wants you to come right now. Once you get inside, you're not on a clock. I'm sorry, I only got five minutes. You have all the time in the world, literally, with the eternal God. You can go in when you want. You can go in how you want. And you can go in with complete confidence. Because you have Jesus as your high priest, you can draw near to God And be with God in whatever situation, at whatever hour, even carrying with you whatever weight of sin, whatever temptation, whatever weakness. Because you are drawing near to him through one who not only has dealt with your sin and weakness, but who understands your weakness and your temptations. Why wouldn't we take advantage of the privilege of at any in every moment having access through such an amazing high priest to such a glorious God.
think it's important to note that the author of Hebrews is not only telling us that we should draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, but also that, that we need to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and to do it with a particular goal in mind. I'm going to read just one more section of that last verse that we read. He says, do all this so that you may receive mercy, so that you may find grace to help in your time of need. You not only can draw near, you need to draw near. When you suffer, and if you're not suffering now, you will suffer. The mercy that you need is found at his throne. The grace that you need is waiting for you at his throne of grace. When you are angry, when you are disappointed, when you're filled with doubts or questions or confusion, the grace that will help you in those moments is found at his throne of grace. The mercy that will empower you to endure and thrive even in those moments is waiting for you at the throne of grace. Speaking, if I can, from personal experience, I know that, that sometimes in the midst of suffering, the temptation is to run from suffering whatever way you can, even if that implies running from God because he is in some way involved in, approved of, allowed your suffering. But I promise you that that will not help you. When you suffer, it will not help you to run from your suffering. It will help you to run to your God, specifically to his throne of grace, because there awaits you, Jesus, your great, your great high priest, the very one who felt the very same temptation as you to run from his suffering. And yet, because he chose to endure, even when his flesh most wanted to run, even when his body was weak to the point of sweating drops of blood, because he endured even in that moment, he's able to give you all the mercy you need in your suffering, all the grace you need in your suffering. I also know, speaking just again from my own experience, that sometimes when you doubt, sometimes when you wrestle with disappointment, sometimes when you're confused or have questions, the temptation is to avoid going to the throne of God until you get the answers you want. But oh, how foolish we are if we think that avoiding the throne of God is the place we're going to get the answers to make sense of our life. The only way that we're going to get the answers that make sense of our lives are to throw ourselves at the feet of God at his throne, going again and again and again and again to the throne of his grace with our questions, with our doubts, with our confusion. Because there awaits us. Jesus, the very same one who just like you cried out in the darkness for his father and heard nothing, and yet because he endured even in that moment, because he remained faithful to the Father and trusted in the Father even in that moment, he has an abundance of grace to give to you when you come to his throne, an abundance of mercy to pour out to you when you come to his throne. No matter what circumstances you face now, no matter what circumstances you face in the future, what you most need are mercy and grace. 
and mercy and grace are found at the, uh, at the throne of grace where God sits and where Jesus, who understands your weakness and temptations, not only gives you access to, but waits for you. Cole, that sounds so simple. Cole, you don't know what I'm dealing with. Cole, you don't know how hard it's been for me. You don't know what people have said to me, done to me. You don't know how I feel betrayed, abandoned, alone. I don't. But Jesus does. He knows your weakness better than you know your weakness. He knows temptation better than you know temptation. So as simple as it sounds, and it's not a formula, it's a promise. Draw near, and you will receive the grace and mercy that you need. Even if you doubt my, my, my word to you, let me assure you, you won't find it away from God's throne. So why not go and ask for it? I don't know if I'll ever have another opportunity to speak to this church, right? This church that I've prayed for for eight years, this church that I've prayed for fervently over these past six or seven weeks. For this reason, I thought it was important that I shared such a basic, simple message for you because it is, I think, the most essential message that we could hear that in any time of our lives, no matter how positive, negative, how much light, how much darkness, how much lightness, or how much heaviness, this is what we need to hold fast to the faith we profess and to go boldly to the throne of grace. That's why I'm going to say it one more time. Brothers and sisters, in this moment and in the moments to come, please, before you look for solutions elsewhere, remember to hold fast to the faith you profess. And when I say that, I'm saying hold fast to your great high priest, Jesus Christ. Remember to draw near to his throne with confidence over and over and over again because there you will receive what you need. You can do that. You can hold fast to your faith because Jesus, the object of your faith, chose not to hold fast to his life. He chose to let it slip voluntarily and painfully through his divine hands. He did this to win you access to the same God that you had rejected and replaced with yourself as Lord over your life. And in the process of so doing, Jesus revealed to you that he is not like you in terms of his holiness and love and that he is exactly like you in terms of your weakness and temptations, or specifically the ones that he faced in order to be able to destroy all the barriers that stood between you and the Father. Why wouldn't you hold fast to someone like that? You can draw near too. You can draw near to the throne of grace with absolute confidence because Jesus voluntarily left that very same throne of grace in order to first draw near to you. And by drawing near to you long before you could ever even intend, intend to or want to draw near to him, Jesus voluntarily experienced the same doubt, the same weakness, the same temptations to anger and bitterness that tend to suffocate us and he endured them. This means that, that he understands you, which means that you should, you should give the confidence, that should give you, pardon me, the confidence to draw near to him in every situation, and it means that he will not fail you, which means you should know that you will never lose that access to the throne, the mercy, the grace you need were purchased by him as he bled in your place. 
to conclude. You can study the most profound theology. You can study every religion the world can create. You can study psychology. You can study philosophy. You can study self-help. You can talk to every guru and every expert that you can find. You can find the most glorious lover in all of the world, and yet you are never, ever, ever going to find anything or anyone who can help you in your doubts, help you in your anger, help you in your confusion, help you in your suffering as much as these Two simple things, holding fast to the faith you profess, Christ himself, and drawing near with confidence to his throne of grace. There is no greater remedy. There is no greater power. There is no greater help. There is no greater love. There is no greater understanding. There is no greater companion. There is no greater leader. He is the only leader who is utterly unlike you where you most need him to be and exactly like you where you most need him to be. Hold fast to him. Draw near to him. And you will find the mercy you need in this moment and the grace that you need for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, three simple sentences are filled with such profound truths. And so right now we put them into practice in this very moment. We take that step of drawing near to you we're weak. I can't list the unique weaknesses and temptations of everyone here, and I don't have to because you, oh Lord, know them. And in your son, you understand them. So as we together draw confidently to your throne with the access you've purchased for us, we lay our weaknesses at your feet. We lay our temptations at your feet. We lay our disappointment our confusion, our questions, our doubts at your feet. We lay our anger at your feet. And we receive the grace and mercy that you have for us. May we not only know it intellectually, but may we feel it experientially. Would you give us just a taste of the touch the grace and mercy that we seek and will you please continue to lead us back to your throne to be replenished over and over again and may others who are weak and tempted get a taste of your grace and get a taste of your mercy through us as we try to point them to the greatest of all high priests amen